You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. That's where we'll be continuing our study uh, through the book of Exodus. I wanted to give you a quick update. You know, last Sunday, so for those of you who weren't here, this will be new for you. Um, and for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we want to let you know about this. But we have in the back table, you know, we introduced a, a kind of vision for our church moving forward in August of last year. And part of that includes several things. One of the things is that we believe that it would be good for us as a church to, to set down some roots and get our own place. I mean, we, don't ever want, we never want a building to be the defining factor of who we are or even, even in the front seat, so to say, of what's driving our church forward. But we do believe that as our church grows, as our church develops, that we want to have an impact on our city for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a big part of that will be seeing us getting into our own building at some point. So we laid out kind of what that might look like, kind of a roadmap. And we have an update on where we're at with that. This update also includes some uh, areas of focus for 2017 that we want to have as a church as we seek the Lord and as we minister to each other and, and things like that. So if you haven't gotten one of these, pick them up there on the back table. And uh, another thing that I told you guys about last week, we were really excited, is that we actually were able to, through this, this fundraising vision that we had, we've actually been able to make an offer on a building. But we made that offer last Monday, and I, I regret to tell you, but this is true, that they did not accept our offer. They accepted a different offer on the same building. But you know what? Here's, here's the way that I want us to look at that. We, I want to look at that with so much confidence in God, you know, because what we prayed last week and what we prayed, we've been talking about on the city, which by the way, for those of you who don't know, is our kind of online hub for our church where, where we talk throughout the week, we share prayer requests and events and stuff like that. So we were sharing on the city and, you know, what I said about this is that we want to pray that if this is the place for us, that God lets it happen. And if it's not the place for us, that God would shut the door because that's the truth. God leads us through open doors, and God leads us through closed doors. And so we believe that this is uh, God's leading in this time for this building, and so we're going to keep looking and praying and saving and, and doing all the right things, and we're in a good spot, and I hope you feel that. I think that the vision that we've got there reflects that, and you'll see that God's doing some good things here at Whitefields, a building maybe in our future, and we're just going to keep pushing towards that. But for now, uh, this one was a no, so we're going to keep looking and praying. So why don't we go ahead and pray as we open up God's Word and as we study today. We'll pray about uh, this development and we'll also pray for our study. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come to you, we come to the Almighty God, the Maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of our lives, the one who gives us every breath, Lord, in whom we live and move and have our being. And, and Lord, we ask that as we come to your Word today that you'd speak to us. And as a church, as we reflect on where you're taking us, Lord, we do want to press forward to what's ahead, both for us as individuals and for us as a church. And uh, as we look at this closed door with this particular uh, building we're looking at, Lord, we trust you in this. And we say, thank you for showing us that this is not the right place, at least at this time. So, God, we ask, though, that you would lead us to the right place and that your will would be done in our church in everything we do, from mission and outreach to teaching the word to raising up kids. And, uh, and Lord, we just ask that you would bless these things, that you would lead them, and that they would, everything we do here would be pleasing to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name as we open up your word, Lord, we ask that you speak to us and give us ears to hear, that we might learn and apply the things that your word is teaching us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we, we are continuing our study through the book of Exodus. The study is called Be Set Free. And in this study, you know, the book of Exodus is an epic story of salvation. And so as we study Exodus, we're learning, we're seeing what salvation means. And one of the things we've seen so far, what salvation means is that on the one hand, salvation is a decisive act of God that happens in a moment. But on the other hand, salvation is also a process of God setting us free from the things that we are captive to. And that is a journey and it's a process. And so we've been following the people of Israel on their journey of being set free by God, their journey of salvation, and we've been showing how many of these things apply directly to us in our journey of salvation as well. So let's read our text today. We're going to be looking at two different stories, but I'm going to show you how they tie together. So let's read a couple of verses from Exodus chapter 17, then we'll look at chapter 18. Our text comes starting in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 17. 
Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And while he sat on it, or he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And from verse 18, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and the people of Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Come with me to verse 13. It says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing this for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come to inquire me of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. This thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. So obey my voice. I give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. And so Moses did uh, what he listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. This is God's word. So have you ever been in a place in your life where you said, you know what, I don't think it can get any worse, but at least, you know, it's only up from here, right? Like, like your life feels like a bad country song, right? Like your truck broke down, your dog died, nobody likes you. And so you're like, well, this is rock bottom. At least it can't get any worse, but then it does. So has that ever happened to you? You said, it can't get any worse, but then it does. Okay, so that's kind of the situation the people of Israel were in here, where we pick up the story in the second half of Exodus chapter 17. They're hiking through the desert, they're running out of supplies, the sun's beating down on them, and just when it seems like things couldn't possibly get any harder, they do. The Amalekites come and attack them. Now we know from the book of Deuteronomy that the Amalekites, the way they attacked them was that they came up behind the Israelites. You can imagine they're hiking through the desert, two million people. And, you know, you've got some people who are kind of stragglers, struggling, people who are behind. It says that the Amalekites came and they attacked the weak people, the stragglers who were lagging behind the rest of the people. That means they attacked those who were sick. They attacked the challenged. They attacked the elderly, the moms with little kids who can't walk fast. These are the people they attacked. The the Amalekites snuck up behind them and they killed the weakest, the most vulnerable, the ones who couldn't fight back. It was truly a cowardly and despicable thing to do. And God took great offense with it. We read that later on in the book of Deuteronomy. Throughout the Bible, God calls his people to be those who protect the weak and the vulnerable. In particular, the most weak and the most vulnerable. God calls his people to account. Are you, what are you doing to protect the most vulnerable, the least among you? And one of the things that God takes issue with the most we see in, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is when people take advantage of those who are weak, or vulnerable. This is the first time also that Israel has had to fight in a battle. Up until now, God has helped them to avoid having to go to war and fight in battles, but now they have to. This is the first time. This is a crisis. It's a time when when people desperately needed good leadership. 
You need good leadership in a time of crisis. And so Moses, we see in this situation, he leads the people well, and they're victorious. But after this crisis is over, we see another situation. And in that situation, Moses basically is failing as a leader. He's not doing well. So these two stories we look at, here's what they have in common. The primary theme of both of them is leadership, and specifically what it means and what it looks like to be a godly leader. But that's not all. These stories, like so many other stories in the Bible, are here because they point us to the one who is greater than Moses. They point us to Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this story, first of all, we're going to talk about the principles. And secondly, we're going to talk about the pictures. So that's kind of your outline today. The principles and the pictures. The title of today's message is Leadership Lessons is Better Together. Okay, so, princi- so let's begin with number one. We'll talk about the principles, and then we'll talk about the pictures. The principles. In these two stories, here's what we see. We see six traits of a godly leader. And we're going to go through this story, and I'm going to point out these six traits to you. These are the principles, and then we'll talk about the pictures. Now, if there's any of you who would say, well, I don't know, maybe this doesn't apply to me. You know, maybe I need to just check out now and play Candy Crush on my phone because, you know, I'm not really a leader per se. It doesn't apply to me. I'm not, I'm not a leader in the church or in my job or anything like this. Let me just stop you right there. That's not the case. I, I would argue that all of us have some area of our lives in which we are exercising leadership, in which we're called to have a leadership. You have a circle of influence, maybe among your peers. I'll tell you this, if you're a parent, if you're, if you're in a marriage, you're called to have uh, some leadership. So, I would bet that every single one of us here has some areas of our lives in which these principles do apply. And so I'd encourage you to tune in and take notes. And if not, if you say, really, I'm really seriously not a leader, I still want you to pay attention because one day you're going to be in a place where you will need to know these things. So now you can learn them now rather than learn them later the hard way. You can be ahead of the game. So these principles, by the way, they don't only apply in the church. They also apply in the workplace, in the home. Proverbs is true for for the church and the home and the workplace, and these principles are as well. Any place where you're called to lead. So the first principle we see of godly leadership in these two stories, we'll begin with the story in Exodus 17. The first thing we learn about a trait of a godly leader. A godly leader knows that there's more to a conflict than what meets the eye. So here's what happens, right? We read the story. The Amalekites come and they attack Israel. And what does Moses do? In chapter 17, verse 2, he goes and he calls this young leader named Joshua. This is the first time when we meet Joshua in the Bible. Later on, Joshua is going to become a great leader in his own right. He's going to be the one who leads the people into the promised land. He's going to take over for Moses when Moses' time is done. And so here's Joshua. He's a young man, probably in his 30s at this time. Moses comes to Joshua and he says, tomorrow... We're going to fight. We're going to battle. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go grab a sword and gather the men and and organize them because you're going to lead the fight. And Joshua says, okay, all right, Moses. Well, well, what are you going to do? What's your part in this? And Moses says, I'm going to go up on that hill over there. And Joshua must have thought, so you're telling me to take a sword and walk towards those other guys with swords. You're telling me to go risk my life down in the valley in the battle, and you're going to go watch us from a safe distance, right, like so that you don't get hurt? How is that fair? And Moses says, no, I'm not just going to be watching you. I'm going up on the hill, and I'm taking with me my staff. And I have, a, I have a prop with me this week. I hope this doesn't feedback. All right, he's got a staff. I imagine it was probably a little rougher and probably a little bigger than this. Probably didn't have this... Uh, this like rubber thing on the end either. But it's the staff, okay? Moses says, I'm going to take my staff with me up on the mountain, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold my staff up in the air. And you know, again, Joshua's got to be thinking, so that's the big plan, right? So I'm going to take a sword and risk my neck, and you're going to go up on the hill and hold your stick in the air, right? And I mean, this isn't just any stick. This is a staff that is called in the Bible, it's called the rod of God. So this was, you know, part human instrument and part divine instrument. It, was, it represented that. This is the rod that struck the river Nile and it turned to blood. This is the rod that struck the ground and plagues happened, right? This is the rod that Moses held up in the wilderness and the Red Sea split in half. And you got to be thinking, you know, like Joshua's like, so you're just going to go stand on the hill and hold it up in the air? Can't you just come down in the battle, maybe strike the ground, do something, make something happen, use the stick in some way? Why would you go up on a hill and just hold your stick in the air? Like that's the big plan for victory? 
Now, let me think about this. Now, why would Moses do this? What's the significance of it? It's very obvious if you were a Jewish person at that time. Problem is that a lot gets lost in translation culturally and over time. For the Jewish people, their posture of prayer was raising their hands up in the air. So when they prayed, they raised their hands up in the air. Now in our culture, people tend to think that the right way to pray is to fold your hands and bow your heads. Uh, In that culture, that's just not how they did it. In fact, if you look through the Bible, you see several postures that people take when they're praying, but almost never, well actually never, do they fold their hands and bow their heads. Instead of bowing their heads, we see people in the Bible, it says Jesus, when he prayed, he looked up towards heaven. It says that in the Old Testament, when people prayed, the Jewish way of praying, they still do this. If you see pictures of people praying at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they raise their hands. That's how they pray. Uh, you know, Moses, his posture of prayer later on, they, when you see Moses in heaven, you'll recognize him because he'll be the one with the flat nose, right? Because he was always, it says he was on his face before God. That was his posture of prayer. And so in that culture, rather than folding your hands in prayer, you would lift your hands in prayer. And so Moses, what is he doing? He's saying, I'm going to go up on the mountain, I'm going to take the staff of God, and I'm going to lift my hands And that's what I'm going to do. What's he talking about? He's talking about praying. He's going up on the mountain with the staff, this symbol of divine authority that God has given him, and he's going to hold it up in the air, and he's going to pray for the people while the battle's going on in the valley. And so it says this in verse 11 of chapter 17. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. So as long as Moses was praying, the people were winning. When he stopped praying, they began to lose. And so it's kind of important that he keeps on praying, right? So God has ordained for some reason, and we're going to talk about why this is later on when we talk about the section about pictures, why it is that this is the way God ordained the victory to be won, that as the people fought, Moses would pray, and it was as Moses was praying up on the mountain with his staff lifted above his head that the people would get victory. Now, again, we'll talk about why that was in a moment, but the principle here is this. Godly leaders understand something. They understand that there's more to a conflict than just what meets the eye. There's more to a conflict than just what meets the eye. See, Moses Moses realizes not only do we need to fight in the valley, but just as importantly, we need to pray because there's a spiritual reality to consider. There's a spiritual battle to be waged. Jesus taught the same thing, and so did others in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle, he writes to the Corinthians. Interestingly, what's he writing about? He's writing about a conflict, an interpersonal conflict that was going on in the church. There were people who weren't getting along. There were disagreements. There was sin, bad stuff happening amongst the community of believers in Corinth. And so Paul writes this letter to them, and you know what he says to them? He says, in all this stuff that's going on, I don't want you to be unaware of the spiritual angle on this, the spiritual aspect of this conflict. He says, for though, in in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, for the weapons of our warfare are not material. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, and they have divine power to break down strongholds. When he writes to the Ephesians, Paul talks about this same topic. He says, I want you to put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I want to just say this. That isn't to say that every problem is a spiritual problem. I mean, there are certainly people who over-spiritualize things. But, on the other hand, it would be naive and it would be wrong not to recognize the spiritual aspects in the conflicts that you do have. Those conflicts that you have with your kids, those conflicts that you have with your wife, your spouse, your husband, or even in your workplace. Don't forget that there's an enemy of your souls who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And and there's often so much more to the battle than just what meets the eye. And a good godly leader recognizes that. Moses recognizes that here. He says, okay, there's a battle to be waged, but you know what? Somebody's got to pray I'm going to be the one to pray. I'm not going to neglect prayer in this. I'm not going to consider prayer something of secondary importance. Rather, he dedicates himself to praying for the situation, and he doesn't stop until the battle is over. And I'll tell you this, in whatever 
conflicts and whatever crises you are facing, whether it's as a parent, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's somewhere else, remember this, there's always more to it than meets the eye. Don't neglect to see the spiritual reality and consider it and to pray for that situation. Here's the second thing, second principle of godly leadership that we see in this story. Godly leaders know their limitations and they get help with their weaknesses. Godly leaders know their limitations and they get help with their weaknesses. So as long as Moses held up his hands in prayer, Israel prevailed. But have you ever tried holding something up over your head for a really long time? Uh, It's not as easy as you might think, especially if you're 80 years old, which by the way, that's how old Moses was, right? So if you're 80 years old and you're going to try and hold something over your head for any amount of time, that gets hard. Like I went to a concert a while back and I thought, oh, I'm going to take a video of this song, right? So I'm holding my phone up over my head, taking a video over the crowd. And then after like three minutes, I'm like, you know what? I don't need this video. Like how long is this song? Like can you guys just wrap it up? Like, I'll just, I'll just download it online or something. Like, I don't need to take this video. I'm going to tap out because I can't keep doing this. My arms hurt, right? And so Moses is 80 years old. He's, he's no spring chicken. Verse 12 tells us, great understatement, Moses' arms got tired. Yeah, he couldn't hang. I don't think any of us could hang, even the strongest of us, right? Because it says that he did it all day until sunset. So imagine trying to hold this stick over your head all day until sunset. It's hard to hang. So what's Moses going to do? Because, you know, he, he knows he's 80 years old. He knows that he's going to have a hard time holding this over his head. In other words, Moses knows his own weakness. And so here we see wisdom in Moses as a leader, that he knew his weakness and he planned ahead. And here's what he do. He, he, here's what he did. He knew that he wasn't strong enough to do this on his own. And so from the outset, before he even gets into a problem, he's already got these two guys that he brought with him, Aaron and Hur. Now, you'd probably assume, like me, right, assume from the outset, well, I'm sure if he's got two guys, he's got to be like young, buff, strapping guys. Well, not exactly, right, because Aaron is Moses' brother, not just his brother, it's his older brother, so Moses is like 80, this guy's like 83, and her, well, maybe he's strong, right? No, guess again, her is the husband of um, Moses' sister, Moses and Aaron's sister, whose name is Miriam, who's, by the way, is older than both of them. So unless, you know, she was cute and got herself a younger guy, probably this guy is, uh, is even, young, even older than both of them, right? Like he's pushing 90. And so, uh, you know, why? Why choose these guys? Well, probably these were the guys who weren't able to go into battle and fight with a sword, right? Like they're, they'd be using the sword like it's, uh, like it's helping them stand up. And so, Moses says, look, guys, I've got a way. I've got a way that you can take part in this battle and do something important and effective. I need your help. I need your help to continue this work of praying and interceding for the people because this task is too much for me. I can't do this. You know, I'll tell you this just as a sidebar. If you're not called to be a Moses, if you're not called to be the Joshua, maybe you're called to be an Aaron or a Hur, one who holds up the arms, one who supports someone else. These guys are heroes in their own right. Without these guys... This doesn't happen. And, and so all, this is what they do all day until sunset. They're, they're sweating, right? Moses is holding up this staff. He's get, his arms are burning. He just wants everything in his body. He just wants to give up. And these guys are holding up his arms. Now imagine you're holding up somebody else's arms. That gets tiring after a while too, right? So I just imagine them just like wedging themselves in there and just doing whatever they can for hours trying to hold up Moses' arms. They're sweating it's kind of gross. Their muscles are burning. They're getting tired. They're getting sore. And just picture this in your mind, this picture, right? Here's Moses in the middle holding this staff up, trying to keep praying all day. Everything in his body just wants to give up, give in, throw in the towel and tap out. He doesn't have the strength to do this. But he was wise enough to know his own limitations, to know his own weaknesses, and surround himself with others who could help him in his area of weakness. So my question is this, what does that look like for you in your life? What is that, what's the application for you? For some of you, the application is going to be one of ability, right? In your workplace or wherever you lead, a, a wise person is one who knows their strengths, but who also is aware of their weaknesses, the things that they're not strong in. And they surround themselves with people who are strong in those areas. Now, some people don't like to do that because there's always this fear that those people will outshine you, you know, that they'll steal your glory, but, but I want you to look at Moses here, and I want you to see this. He's not out for his own glory. 
Moses' aim in this whole thing is for the victory for the people and for the glory of God. And, and again, that's what godly leadership is about. It's about not being afraid to share the glory because you're not in it for your own glory. You're in it for the best for others and for the glory of God. And so a good godly leader is one who knows their own limitations and surrounds themselves with people who can help them in their weaknesses. For others of you, the application is going to be more one of morality. Maybe there are certain areas in your life where you have a weakness. Maybe it's in regard to substance abuse. Maybe it's in regard to pornography. Maybe it's in regard to something else. You need to know that. You need to address it, recognize it. And you need to surround yourself from the outset, not, not when you're in a crisis, but from the outset with people like Aaron, people like her, who will be there for you in that moment of weakness. They'll be there for you when your strength does fail, and they'll be there to support you. They'll be there to speak into your life and to know you. So a wise person and a godly leader is one who knows their own limitations and who surrounds themselves with people who can help them in their weaknesses. The third thing that we see about a godly leader is this. Godly leaders are teachable. This brings us to chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 18, the people of Israel have arrived at their destination, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. They're going to spend a long time here, but I'll give you this kind of perspective on it. It's been 12 months, roughly, since God spoke to Moses from a burning bush in the wilderness and called him to go back to Egypt, the very place that he had fled from. And God said, because I'm going to set the people free, I'm going to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And so in Exodus chapter 4, for those of you who've been tracking with us, this, you'll remember this study. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses packed up his wife, he packed up his kids, and they started off towards Egypt. But you, do you remember what happened along the way? Moses and his wife got in a fight, right? And you're like, I didn't think that happened to people like Moses. I thought that only happened to me. No, seriously, they got in a fight. And you know what Zipporah told him? She said, you, Moses, have been a terrible husband. And she said, I'm not going with you to Egypt. Like, you can go to Egypt if you want. I'm not going with you. And I'm taking the kids with me, and we're going back to live with my dad, right? And so Moses ends up going to Egypt alone without his family, and Zipporah, after they get in this fight, takes the kids and goes and lives with their dad. Seriously, this is, this is a mess, right? Maybe there's some of you who would say, you know, I thought that kind of stuff only happened in my family. Well, no, it happened even in Moses' family. Furthermore, Moses was not completely honest with his father-in-law when he left uh, Midian, which is where he was at. Rather than telling his father-in-law, whose name was Jethro, rather than telling them that, okay, God showed up to me and God called me to go and, and to liberate the Israelites, he says, uh, hey, so Jethro, I'm just going to go for a little bit. I'm going to check on my family members, you know, make sure that they're still alive and stuff, and I'll be back in a, in a little bit. Right? And that is not the truth, right? He definitely withheld from him the part about God speaking to him. So here's the thing. We read several times in this text and also before, who was Moses' father-in-law? His name was Jethro, but what was his occupation? Well, he was a shepherd, but he had a side job, and his side job was he was the priest of Midian. In other words, he was a pagan priest. Like, he's not just a worshiper of pagan deities. He's a priest of pagan deities. And it seems like Moses might have been a little timid about talking with his father-in-law about his faith and the fact that God, Yahweh, had spoken to him. Well, well, so God uses Moses, though, in spite of his flaws, which, by the way, should give us all a ton of hope and encouragement that if God could use Moses, well, then, of course, can he use you? Can he use you in spite of your flaws? Absolutely. And so God uses Moses, and he sets Israel free. And word gets back to Jethro. I mean, how could it not get back to Jethro? All these things that were happening in Egypt, Egypt's like the capital of the world at this point. This was probably huge news. People were talking, you know, hey, did you hear what happened in Egypt? I mean, this guy went and stood before Pharaoh and said, you let these people, this, let all these slaves go or God's going to strike you. And then the river turned to blood and there were plagues and the, the Red Sea split in half and the people walked across on dry land and then the waves came crashing down and, and destroyed the Egyptian army. It was amazing. Jethro's like, who, what, do you say somebody went and talked to Pharaoh? And he puts the pieces together and he realizes, that's my son-in-law, right? Like, you guys are, that's Moses. I know him. That's my son-in-law. I've been wondering when he's going to be back from Egypt. He said he was just going to visit his family and he just hasn't been back for, like, it's been a really long time. So he finds out that Moses has been leading the people and he finds out now the people of Israel are encamped at the base of this mountain 
And so he goes there, and who does he take with him? He takes with him Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two kids. So in chapter 18, verse 8, Moses, we read, greets his father-in-law, and then they go into this tent together and they have a talk. And this is interesting. Moses tells his father-in-law, we read, uh, verse 8 and 9, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardship they had faced along the way and how the Lord had delivered them. You'll notice the Lord there in all capital letters. That's the covenant name of God, the name which the Jewish people considered so sacred and so personal that they would never say it. In fact, they didn't even want to write it, and so they used the word Adonai, which means Lord, but whenever you see it in capitals here, it means that's the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, however it's pronounced. And so what is Moses doing? He's telling this man, who's a priest of Midian, pagan priest, he's telling him about all the great things that Jehovah, that Yahweh has done. In other words, he's not being timid about his faith anymore. And it says in verse 9, what happened? Jethro rejoiced for all that the Lord had done in Israel. Now remember, Jethro is a pagan priest. And whereas before it seems that Moses was a little bit timid to tell Jethro about the Lord God, now Moses says, Jethro, I need to tell you about the Lord and what he's done in my life. You realize that's the essence of a testimony, right? Like a testimony is your story of what God has done in your life. It's your story of how you came to believe and embrace the gospel and follow Jesus. It's your story. It's those countless stories you have of how throughout your life God has been with you and worked in your life and answered your prayers and led you and how he's transforming you. And Jesus, you might remember, that he called his disciples, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Right? He didn't say, you'll primarily be my, my theologians or my, um, my lawyers. Right? He said, no, you'll be my witnesses. You know what a witness does? If you've ever had to bear witness in court, here's what they do. They bring you up on the, on the stand and they ask you, well, so what did you see? And what did you hear? That's what they want to know. What did you see and what did you hear? And so that's what a witness does. They tell their story of what they've seen and what they've heard. And really any of us can do that, right? Just tell your story. And that's what Moses is doing. It's a powerful thing. He tells Jethro, Jethro, in the past I was timid to talk to you about the Lord God. But now I need to tell you. I need to tell you what Yahweh, what Jehovah, what he has done in my life. I can't keep this to myself anymore. And here's the incredible thing. I want you to see Jethro's response in verse 10. It says, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians. And here's what he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And it says then that Jethro brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. You know what this is describing, right? This is describing a conversion experience. Jethro, the priest of Midian until five minutes ago, is now converted. He's now a believer. And not only does he make a confession of faith, he says, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, alone is God. But he goes one step further and he makes an offering to God and he worships. This is a conversion. True conversion is always accompanied by actions. Now check out what happens next. Verse 13, it says, the next day Moses had to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. So what's Moses doing? He's acting as the arbiter or as the counselor, even in a way as a pastor over the people of Israel. The people would come to Moses and they would bring their disputes and they would bring their questions and they would bring their conflicts. And they would come to Moses and Moses would hear them out and then he would tell them what God says about their matter. And it says that he would do this from morning until evening. I just want you to picture yourself at the DMV. You've taken the day off work room full of people, and there's only one person behind the counter. And you wait all day long, and then you get to come back the next day to the DMV. You ever take time off work to go to the DMV? Like, that's like the double punch, right? Like, it's like a double slap in the face. Like, you just took off work, but not even for like a fun reason. You took off work to go wait at the DMV, which is just painful. And I don't want to say anything about, against people who work at the DMV, in case there's any of you here, because here's the thing. We know that you hate it too, right? Like, we're not mad at you, Right? It's just a bad system, right? Like there's one person behind there. There's a bunch of other people. Now imagine that there's no chairs there either and you're just standing around all day, day after day, waiting your turn at the DMV. You know who's miserable? Everybody, right? Like the person behind the counter isn't enjoying that either. The people waiting are not enjoying it. Everybody's miserable. And so in verse 14, Jethro says to Moses, Moses, what are you doing, man? 
Moses says, well, hey, what? this is my calling. I mean, I'm the leader. I'm the one who has expertise in this area. And I want to help these people. I mean, they've got problems, and they want to know what God says about them. So how could I say no to that? And, and Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. He says, you're going to burn yourself out, and the people are going to get frustrated. Everybody's going to be miserable. Not to mention, like, okay, maybe you can pull this off when your family's living with me, Jethro says, but now you're going to need to take care of your own family, Moses, and you're not going to be able to work from morning to evening every single day. It's just not fair to them. And so for your sake, for your family's sake, for the people's sake, you've got to lead better. Instead of doing this all yourself, here's what you need to do. You need to raise up other leaders so that you're not the only one doing this job. And here's what I think is amazing before we go on. Moses actually takes his advice, right? Like this is one of the traits of a godly leader. A godly leader is teachable. Because if I'm Moses, right, my first response is probably, hey, who do you think you are, man? You just walk in here and tell me how to do my job? Like, have you seen my resume? Do you know who I am? Like, who are you that I should listen to you? I'm Moses. Like, I'm famous. People know me. I'm kind of a big deal. And you're just some nerf herder, right, who lives out in the middle of nowhere and and you're, you're like five minutes ago, you were a pagan. I hear from God, right? Like I'm Moses. Have you ever led two million people, Jethro? You ever stood before Pharaoh and told him what to do? You ever parted the Red Sea? So who do you think you are to walk in here and tell me how to do my job? But that's not what Moses did, is it? Instead, he humbly accepted Jethro's advice. Verse 24 says that Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and he did all that he said. One of the marks of a good and godly leader is that they have the humility and they have the security to be teachable. The fact is that sometimes the best advice comes from the most unlikely sources. Moses was probably never expected to receive advice in ministry from someone like Jethro. But if Moses hadn't followed his advice, the people would have rebelled and Moses would have burned out. And so it's to Moses' credit that he was teachable. So let me ask you this, are you teachable? The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about being teachable. I'll just read you Three quick Proverbs. Proverbs 12, verse 15 says this, The way of a fool seems right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Next one in verse, uh, chapter 19, it says, Listen to counsel. Accept discipline that you may be wise for the rest of your days. And Proverbs chapter 15, it says this, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, and humility comes before honor. The fourth characteristic of a godly leader is that godly leaders equip and empower others. And here's the thing that Moses needs to shift in his thinking. Moses' thinking needs to shift. He needs to stop seeing his role as being, him being the judge for everybody. He needs to be the one now who raises up judges for the people. In the book of Ephesians, Paul the Apostle talks about the role of the Christian leader in the church. And he says that the, the role of Christian leaders is not only to serve the people, that's part of it, but that's not all. It's not just to serve people, it's also to equip people so that they will be able to serve other people themselves. So not only to serve people, also to equip people to fulfill God's calling on their lives. And I'll tell you what, as a church, that's a big part of our vision as well. That's why we teach the Bible the way we do. We want to equip people, but it's also, you know, we, we have a school of ministry and discipleship, which by the way, we're going to be starting classes again over the next couple of weeks, so keep an eye out for that. But that's our vision behind that, is we want to equip people so that they'll have the tools that they need to serve God and to walk with God and to, and to minister to others as God leads them. You know, if you're a parent, your goal in, in leading your kids is not to create dependence. Your goal is to create independence. You want to equip them with the tools they need to be successful adults who have their own faith. And that's true wherever you lead. You don't want to create dependence. You want to equip people and empower them so they can be leaders in their own right, whatever capacity they might have. It's interesting here. He says that some of the leaders were leaders over thousands. There are some who were leaders over hundreds, fifties, and tens, right? In other words, there were people who had different capacities for leadership but whatever their capacity was, Moses' job was to equip them and raise them up and help them to step into that calling that God had on their lives. So that's an important trait. Fifthly, godly leaders don't ignore their families. Godly leaders don't ignore their families. Now, I already mentioned uh, a little bit about Moses and his family and how this was an area where we could say he probably didn't do the greatest job. Here in, in chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law has been taking care of Moses' family for him for a year, and now he shows up and then in the last verse of the chapter, he leaves. And guess who goes with him when he leaves? Nobody. He leaves by himself. 
He says, Moses, I've been taking care of your family for a year. Now it's time for you to take care of your own wife and kids. Moses, it's time for you to step up and, and lead as a leader in your family too. You know, from the moment you got married, from the moment that you had a child, you received an assignment from God. And that assignment is to make them a priority. Uh, you know, there are two specific ways that we see Moses neglecting his family in this chapter and in, in the book of Exodus. Number one, and this one's the obvious one, Moses just wasn't around. Like physically, he wasn't present. And so that's the first way that we see Moses neglecting his family. The second way, though, is not as obvious, and I think that in our culture, it often gets missed. Here's the second way, and this is very clear if you go back to Exodus chapter 4, is that Moses had not made his family's spiritual formation a priority. Even when he was around, he didn't make their spiritual formation a priority. In Exodus chapter 4, you know that big argument that they got in where they split up? You know what the argument was about? Moses was so busy doing all his other stuff, work and whatever he was doing, that he had neglected to circumcise his own children, which was a sign of the covenant. Like that's what he as the father as a leader, was supposed to do, but he didn't do it. And his wife, who it seems to us, maybe not a believer, I mean, her dad was a pagan priest, she says, Moses, you are a bloody husband to me. And she takes a knife and, and she does it herself. And she's upset with him. Why? Well, because he's supposedly this great leader and yet he's been neglecting the spiritual formation of his own family. And so here's the thing. You know, I think our culture, rightly so, places a big emphasis on parents being present and spending quality time with their kids. And that's excellent. I love that. And, and we should emphasize that. But here's what our culture, and even as Christians, we tend to miss. And that, that's this, the importance of not only prioritizing quality time, but prioritizing your family's spiritual formation. Okay, so that's, that's an important thing to see here. And this is the last one, last trait of a godly leader. Godly leaders know that character is more important than giftedness. Character is more important than giftedness. When, when Jethro says to Moses how to pick the people who are going to serve with him in this capacity and lead with him, he says, he doesn't say, look for people who have law degrees so that they can help you judge the people, right? Because people who have law degrees are good at doing that. No, he says, here's the kind of people I want you to look for. He says, people who are able, first of all, like they can't be totally like ignorant of, of this stuff. They have to be able but here's the thing. They need to be people who fear God. They need to be people who are trustworthy and who hate bribes. In other words, the emphasis is on their character, not on their giftedness or their skills. We see the same principle later on in the Bible, like in Acts chapter 6, when it comes time for the early church to start delegating some of the, uh, some of the tasks in the early church about benevolence. Who do they look for? Do they look for good accountants? No, the primary qualification is this. They looked for people who were full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy and Titus, we have qualifications for leaders, spiritual leaders, and all those qualifications are about godly character first, above giftedness and ability. And so in our lives, in our areas where we lead, godly leaders are to value character above giftedness. So these are the principles that this section teaches us about godly leadership, but but again, there's more to this section than just practical principles. If all we see here is just practical principles, we're missing the reason why this story, these stories are given to us. And the reason they're given to us, as with many stories in the Bible, is to point us to the source of our hope, to point us to the one who is greater than Moses, Jesus Christ. So the pictures, the story begins. Let me just run you through it again. With the Amalekites attacking the Israelites, Moses goes up on the hill, he prays, for the battle, and as long as he prays, Israel's winning, but when he stops praying, the Amalekites begin to take ground. And so try as he might, though, Moses finds that he is unable. He lacks the ability. He is too weak to do that which he knows he should do, even that which he wants to do, but he can't do it. And you could put it this way. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Where does that phrase come from? That's a phrase that Jesus used. He used it to speak about his disciples at a time when he asked them to pray with him. He said, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. What is he talking about? On the night before he was crucified, Jesus had his last meal with his disciples. Then afterwards, they went out to basically what was a public park, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they went there to pray. And he asked some of his disciples to come with him because this was the time when he was genuinely distressed and genuinely anxious about what awaited him. And he needed some people to be around him and so he brings his disciples and he said, please stay up with me and pray. Support me during this time. 
But what did they do? They just kept falling asleep. They couldn't do it. And Jesus says, guys, look, I'm, I'm not mad at you. I, I just wanted you to be here with me. And I, and I get it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know that you want to, but your flesh is too weak. Like Moses in chapter 17 here, his spirit is willing. He wants to do it. He knows he should, but yet his flesh is weak. He knows what he should do. He wants to do it, but he doesn't have the strength. Paul the Apostle talks about the same thing in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. He says, you know, it's like there's a force at work within me, a force that's working against me. It's contrary to me. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. I want to serve God. I want to obey God. And yet, I don't. The good that I want to do, I don't do it. And I find myself doing the very things that I hate. It's as if there's a force inside of me. He says, there is a force inside of me that is contrary to me. It's working against me. And, and let me tell you what, that is an experience. If you're a human being, you know exactly what that feels like. Well, at the end of the battle with the Amalekites in chapter 17, verse 14, Moses comes down from the hill and God tells him, I want you to write down what happened. This, make this a memorial for the people. So for the first time in all of the book of Exodus, God tells Moses to write something down. Now, I would have thought that he would have said, you know, after the plagues or maybe after the Red Sea splits, like that's a pretty big deal, that at that point, God would have said to Moses, write this stuff down. Don't let anybody ever forget this. But no, this is the first time God wants something written down. So what does Moses do? He writes it down and then he builds an altar and he names the altar, God is Oh, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Now, what does that even mean? Okay, so if you've ever been in a stadium of a winning team, a team that's won championships before, they always have banners hanging down to commemorate their victories. Similar idea here, actually. A banner spoke of military victory. And the point here is to say this. God is the one who gave us that victory. We didn't do it on our own. He gets the credit for the win. Now, you might have expected that Moses and her and Aaron would have taken credit for this win, this victory, because they persevered on top of the hill. But even though they had a part to play, they still acknowledge, you know what? It was God who won us that battle. We didn't really do much. And here's why. Because they were weak, and they even cut some corners, right? Like, they, they tried to hold it up, but every now and then they put it down. They're like, all right, look, we can afford to lose a couple guys because my arms are tired. They're, all right, I'll get back to it, right? Like, before they totally got defeated. They're cutting corners. They're barely hanging in there. They're weak. And yet the Lord wins the battle on their behalf. Now here's the picture I want you to see. If you're Joshua and you're the men of Israel, you're down in the valley, you're fighting the battle, and you look up on the hill, what are you going to see? You're going to see the sun as it begins to set behind them. What image do you see silhouetted there in the Middle East sun? It would have been the image of three men on a hillside. And the one in the middle arms outstretched between a piece of wood, interceding to the Lord God on your behalf as you fight this battle, the real battles being fought on the hill. It was through that action that God chose to give you the victory. Do you see the picture? You see, Joshua and the people wouldn't have understood it at that time, but we understand it now. You know why? In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has been crucified, after he's been resurrected, he spends some time with his disciples and it's this amazing thing it says there, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he went back to Moses. He said, I'm going to tell you how this story is actually about me. Imagine what Jesus said to them about this story as he reminded them of this story. Surely they had heard it before growing up, you know, going to synagogue and stuff but they had never understood the significance. Why did he have to go up there? Why was it only when he had his arms outstretched around that piece of wood? Is it, why was it only then that they got the victory? What, what, was, what was that all about? Like, that's a weird thing. And how is it that as this man is stretching out his arms around this piece of wood up on top of the hill, that it's only then that they get the victory? And God is the banner. He's the one who gives victory in life because of his act. Do you know what Jesus did? After that, just as Moses called God, or just as Moses had been called by God to lead, and then Moses raised up other leaders, Jesus then told his disciples, He said, Just as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. He equipped them and then he sent them out to continue and to expand his work and his mission. And that baton now of, of 
being handed down, that work and that mission being passed from one generation to the next, it has now come to us. It has come to us. We are the ones in this generation whom God is calling and equipping and empowering and sending out to carry out His mission in His mission field. This is an incredible picture of the gospel. Like them, we too have been attacked by the enemy. We're not strong enough to win this battle, but Jesus is our banner. He fought the battle for us. He won the battle, the victory on our behalf with arms outstretched on the cross of Calvary. He is the one who persevered. He is the one who with arms outstretched made intercession before God the Father on our behalf so we might be saved because of what he accomplished on the cross for us. And now our desire, his desire for us rather, his desire for us is that we would be equipped, that he would build into us godly character and he would empower us by his spirit and send us out on his mission to bring that message of life and hope, of forgiveness and redemption to the world because of who he is and what he's done. So as we wrap up today, just here's what I'd like you to consider. Consider these principles, but more importantly, consider this picture. And let me ask you this. Will you receive today what he has done for you, the victory which he won on your behalf? Will you embrace his love for you? Will you respond to his call on your life to be his disciple and his ambassador in every area of your life? Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the victor. You are the one who won the victory on our behalf. You are our banner. And Lord, this morning we stand under that banner of what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray that every one of us in here would say yes. Yes, I receive the gospel. I receive the love of God. Yes, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. So Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for all the things about you throughout the scriptures. We pray that you'd let the message of the gospel sink into our hearts and change us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.